On October 1st, 2017, a little after 10 p.m., the first shots were fired into the crowd at the Route 91 Harvest Festival in Las Vegas. It was the worst mass shooting in American history. While country music fans danced the night away, Stephen Paddock rained hell down from his luxury hotel room high above the crowd. There were around 22,000 people there. I was one of them. Back in 2017, I was working as a touring lighting director with a country act. And as fate would have it, we had a stop in Las Vegas on October 1st, 2017. The Route 91 Festival was on its third and final night. My job was to run lights for the band from what we call front of the house. It's an area located about 80 to 100 feet from the stage out in the middle of the crowd. It's where all the audio, lighting, and video is controlled controlled from. We do it from out there because if it sounds and looks good to us, it will probably sound and look good to you. So we are very much out in the crowd. Between front of house and the stage are two long runs of barricade, creating a sort of protected walkway for folks like me working on the tour, festival workers, security, and anyone else with backstage access to get back and forth between front of house and the stage without having to battle through the crowd. Standing out at front of house facing the stage, I could see the Mandalay Bay towering just behind it and to the right. And to give you a little more context, also from that vantage point, standing at front of house facing the stage, if I looked over to my left, just across the street from and slightly in front of the left side of the stage, I could see our tour bus parked in the lot with all the other buses that were there that day. Our bus was parked right on the fence line closest to the street and very close to the stage. So, stage front of house, bus, Mandalay Bay. Now, fast forward to that night. We were not the headlining act that night. We played just before the headlining act, Jason Aldean. Now, when our show was over, we began changing over and moving our gear off stage to make room for Aldean. Right about at the top of Aldean's show, I was done with my work day and made the decision to go back out to front of house to catch some of the set. As a lighting director, I wanted to see how everything looked, the lighting, the set, etc. As I made my way down the barricade walkway to front of house, I saw there were many press photographers blocking up the path, so I shimmied my way through them to the front of house riser just behind. After about 30 seconds into the first song of Aldean's set, I thought, well, I feel like I've seen what I came here to see. I think I'd like to go back to the bus now. As I said, my workday was done, and I just wanted to get out of the hustle and bustle of the crowd and relax after a long day. But the thought of fighting my way back through that line of photographers felt discouraging. So, I opted to stay till the end of the third song, which I knew is the industry standard limit for press photographers to get their shots. After that, they had to disperse and I would be free to head back to the bus for the night. But then, somewhere at the beginning of the second song, something told me to go. I did fight my way through the photographers, making my way down the barricade path again, behind the stage, and finally across the street to the bus. Once on the bus, I was happy to see my good friend Zeke was sitting there watching Scarface on the satellite TV in the front lounge. I grabbed a bag of chips and a bowl of salsa and joined him. Moments later, another of our crew members walked onto the bus real quick to grab something he needed back out on the stage to finish packing up the truck. As he opened the bus door to leave and make his way back across the street, to the stage, he quickly stopped 
popped his head back into the front lounge and said, Did you hear that? Did that sound like gunshots? As his words were still hanging in the air, we were all suddenly overcome by the sound of a loud barrage of rapid gunfire. We immediately closed and locked the doors, pulled down the shades, and turned off the lights. We then went into what we call Bunk Alley. It's the middle section of the tour bus that houses the bunks we all sleep in while traveling down the interstates at night. There are no windows in this section of the bus. We got down on the floor and waited it out. More and more of our band and crew ran from where they were at the venue to the relative safety of the bus. Some of them had blood on them from other concert goers. Some of them brought scared members of the audience with them. All of us piled together in the dark bunk alley, not knowing exactly what was happening outside. While the phone calls were flying out to loved ones, letting them know the predicament we were in, I pictured in my mind what was going on out there. It sounded like there was a hit squad outside with multiple shooters, like the one from Scarface that eventually took out Tony Montana in the De Palma film. Now, during the ordeal, which seemed like it lasted forever, I fluctuated between a kind of survival mode of hanging on till it passed and feeling hopeless, like this may be it. Perhaps there is no way out of this for me, you know? It was scary. And thankfully, everyone on that bus, all the band and crews performing at the festival that night survived. Since that day, whenever I tell this story, people always comment on how lucky I was and how I could have been killed. Had I not made the decision to leave front of house when I did, who knows? And as scary as it was, I was lucky. I was on the bus the whole time. I always have to remind myself that I never had to run for my life, but a lot of people did, and a lot of people didn't make it. Why did this happen? Newly released FBI files might hold the answers we've been looking for. I'm Chris. Thanks for listening to my story. I hope you'll stick around with us for the rest of it. Let's recap. It did feel like forever, but in reality, it only lasted 10 minutes. That's how long it took for one deranged man to change thousands of lives forever. 58 people gone, over 500 others wounded, two more victims would die years later from complications. When police finally breached his hotel room, they found the shooter dead by his own bullet, surrounded by an arsenal of military-grade weapons. Everyone who was at the Route 91 Harvest Festival in Las Vegas is permanently changed in one way or another. Yet, the burning question on everybody's mind is, why? Why did this man decide to massacre hundreds of strangers on October 1st, 2017? Before that night, the most memorable thing about him were his quirks. He had strong reactions to smells. He wore gloves around the house and asked hotel staff to clean his room with water, saying cleaning products gave him a rash. He complained about feeling tired and sick, but his doctor found nothing wrong with him. He recommended an antidepressant, but Stephen was afraid of medication and only agreed to an anti anxiety prescription. He wasn't in-your-face political or religious. He didn't light up a room, but you wouldn't necessarily go out of your way to avoid him either. You could say Stephen Paddock was an all-around nobody who became the most hated man in America. On September 25th, 2017, he checked into his free suite at the Mandalay Bay Casino. Cameras followed him for the next six days. Security had no idea they were tracking the final moments of America's worst mass murderer. This story really begins on September 9th, when Stephen called to reserve his room at the hotel. He asks for a room on the 21st floor, but it's not available. On September 25th, he arrives at the VIP counter around 3 p.m. When he checks into his suite on the 32nd floor, he asks which direction it faces. 
Room number 32-135 is a large corner room at the end of the hallway with a great view of the Vegas Strip and the Country Music Festival across the street. There are only two ways into Stephen's suite. You can go through the main double doors or through the adjoining room, 32-134. To ensure complete privacy, Stephen books that room too. His checkout date is October 2nd. He spends the next two hours eating at a sushi restaurant and dropping off small bags in his room. It isn't until 5 p.m. that Stephen begins loading bags of guns into his suite. He pulls up in his minivan and loads five heavy suitcases onto the bellhop's cart. Usually, guests will venture off while their bellman brings their luggage up. Stephen chooses to stay and rides up with the bellman in the service elevators. According to management, this isn't unusual, especially for high rollers with valuable items. Of course, the bellhop has no idea those valuable items are military-grade weapons. Stephen spends most of his night upstairs. He leaves the hotel around 9.40 with two bags in tow. He drives away to spend the night at his house in nearby Mesquite, Nevada, a small city of about 20,000 people on the Arizona border. Stephen doesn't return to Las Vegas until 8 p.m. on Tuesday. At some point during the day, he wires $50,000 to a bank account in the Philippines where his girlfriend, 62-year-old Mary Lou Danley is visiting her family. Stephen had surprised her with a plane ticket two weeks earlier. Before going back to the Mandalay, Stephen stops at the Ogden, a condominium complex in the downtown area. He had another reservation at the Ogden for the same week. His room overlooked a different event, the Life is Beautiful Festival. This festival, however, was held in the streets. It wasn't as accessible as the Harvest Fest near Mandalay Bay. Stephen may have used the Life is Beautiful Festival for initial planning. Now, could it have been a possible target? The answer to that question died with him. Seven more suitcases to his suite. Again, he uses the service elevator. He tips the bellman, who had no way of knowing these cases were packed with guns and ammunition. Later that night, Stephen returns to Mandalay Bay. Another bellhop helps him move seven more bags up to his room. This brings the total number to 12 suitcases. One man, two rooms, 12 bags. By October 1st, that number would nearly double. Gambles for eight hours until morning. Paddock was a regular at the Mandalay and several casino hosts knew him. The videos show their interactions as being completely normal and in no way alarming. Stephen gambles through the night. You can even see casino hosts interacting with him and shaking his hand. Nothing seems out of the ordinary. Stephen spends most of Wednesday, the 27th, in his room. He leaves later that night with two large suitcases. He pops into the Ogden, then drives home to Mesquite. On Thursday morning, he makes a stop at Guns and Guitars for one more weapon. He visits a gun range to test out his new toy, then wires another $50,000 to his Filipino bank account. He drives back to Mandalay, where he brings three more suitcases to his room. He also brings up a white container, but it's unclear what's inside. He gambles through the night and into Friday morning. He buys snacks, talks with staff, and plays his favorite video poker machines. The Route 91 Harvest Festival opens on Friday the 29th. From Stephen's room, he can see the back of the main stage and the crowd dancing in front of it. He spends most of that night in his room. If we had to guess, he's adjusting his sights and planning his next few moves. At one point, he orders room service to both rooms. He asks the staff to leave the food carts behind. It's an odd request, but they do it. He drives back to Mesquite and returns to Vegas with two more 
more suitcases. On September 30th, Stephen hangs Do Not Disturb signs on both rooms. He makes another round trip and returns with two more bags, bringing the total to 19 suitcases. He gambles through the night and goes to sleep around 7 in the morning. Around noon on Sunday, October 1st, Stephen heads to the parking garage. He comes back through the front doors with his last two bags for a grand total of 21. The last time cameras catch Stephen is around 12.30 p.m. on October 1st. He steps off the elevator on the 32nd floor and begins his master plan. So, who is this madman? As the New York Times puts it, Stephen Paddock was a walking contradiction, a gambler who left nothing to chance. He owned several houses in multiple states, yet hardly stayed in any of them. He lived the good life of a high-stakes Vegas gambler, yet he drove a used minivan and preferred Domino's Pizza and Taco Bell to fancy restaurants. He wasn't on social media, yet he stared at video poker screens all night and slept all day. Stephen was one of four sons born to Irene and Patrick Paddock between the 1950s and 60s. They were a lower middle class family from Southern California, but he was mostly raised by his mother. You see, Patrick Paddock wasn't like most dads. Patrick, a.k.a. Benjamin Hoskins, was a career criminal and pseudo-famous bank robber. He was on the FBI's most wanted list until his arrest when Stephen was seven. He ended up escaping from prison and lived for almost a decade under a fake name until they caught up to him again. According to his brother, Stephen was the most boring and least violent boy in the family. He was a numbers guy, analytical, the kind of guy who thought two or three moves ahead. As a kid, Stephen was sick of being poor. Their mother hardly earned enough on a secretary's salary to raise them alone. Making as much money as possible became his life's mission. He did a stint as a postal worker. Then he worked for the IRS auditing defense contractors. He dabbled in the aerospace industry, but that wasn't as lucrative as he thought. Finally, he discovered real estate and all its fortunes. He began buying, refurbishing, and renting properties in poorer areas of Los Angeles. His tenants thought of Stephen as a a big-hearted landlord. When someone complained about him raising the rent, he offered to split the difference. He knew all his renters by name and taught himself how to repair plumbing and air conditioning issues. Stephen hit pay dirt when he bought and flipped a 110-unit building in Texas for $8.3 million. He had enough money to buy planes and take flying lessons. He bought more properties and structured his business so his whole family would profit. He even set his mother up in her own private apartment off one of his many buildings. But what he spent most of his money on was guns and gambling. Stephen began buying guns in 1982. During the LA riots of the 90s, he stood atop one of his buildings armed to the teeth and ready to shoot anyone who threatened his property. But in the year before the massacre, he bought 55 weapons. He was twice married and twice divorced. He didn't have any children. In the 2000s, Stephen filled the void with gambling. Video poker became his one true love. By then, he owned a home in Mesquite. It was only an 80-mile drive away from his personal playground, Sin City, Las Vegas. Stephen loved being waited on hand and foot. Some thought he was arrogant and needy. Others were used to it. Vegas high rollers like to put on airs, as my grandma would say. He acted like everyone at the casino worked for him. He'd order the same meal from a different waitress if the first one didn't come fast enough. Gambling was his social life. It made him feel special and important. He gambled enough to earn free rooms at the Mandalay Bay Resort and Casino. The staff knew him by face and name. When Mr. Paddock was in town, 
everyone jumped to help him. It's how casinos work. Wine and dine the high rollers. His appetite for gambling is why many assumed Stephen was in debt with the casino. Is that why he unloaded on the Harvest Fest that night and took his own life? No. According to Mandalay Bay and other casinos on the Strip, Stephen was in good standing. He had a $100,000 credit limit, which he barely used. He could afford to lose $30,000, $50,000, even $60,000. According to a gaming industry analyst, Stephen could lose up to $100,000 in one session and be okay. He was a professional poker player who planned every move, especially his last most deadly day. Remember those room service carts Stephen asked the staff to leave behind? He used those to set up security cameras outside his room and at the peephole. They weren't recording, but they were live feeding back to his laptop. He could see people coming and going in the hall. Mandalay Bay Security Systems recorded Stephen opening, closing, and locking the doors in both rooms repeatedly. Around 9.30 that night, he locks the deadbolt in room 135. Shortly after, Jason Aldean begins his act to close out the Harvest Festival. That's when Stephen deadbolts room 134, sealing himself inside with his armory. Around 10 p.m., a Mandalay security guard named Jesus Campos arrives on the 32nd floor to investigate an open door alert in a different guest's room. But when he arrives at the stairwell door, it's blocked. He takes the long way around, only to find someone sealed the door shut with an L bracket. He radios down at 10.04, alerting security to the barricaded door. They send a maintenance worker to come and fix the problem. Jesus knows something isn't right. That's when he hears a pop-pop come from room 135. Stephen fires the first shots at 10.05 p.m. By 10.06, he's fired over 100 bullets into the crowd. Meanwhile, Jesus moves towards the room to investigate. Stephen sees him on his camera and shoots through the door. One of the 35 bullets hits Jesus in the leg. He takes cover and radios about an active shooter on the 32nd floor. That's when the maintenance worker arrives. Clueless about what's happening, Jesus screams at him to get down. He likely saved the man's life. Stephen turns his attention back toward the festival. He fires hundreds more rounds in the next 60 seconds. He even took a few pot shots at jet fuel storage tanks over 2,000 feet away. Thankfully, jet fuel is mostly kerosene and doesn't explode from gunfire like in the movies. Meanwhile, two Las Vegas police officers responding to a different call are already on their way up. They, however, stop on the 31st floor right under Stephen's room. The final shots ring out at 10.15 p.m. Stephen used his revolver to put one last shot through his own head. By then, the damage was done. 58 people were dead on the ground. Over 500 others were wounded, some critically. 400 more were injured during the mad dash to safety. Police blew the doors off Stephen's room at 11.20 p.m., more than an hour after he opened fire. They recovered 24 guns from the room, 18 more from his house in Mesquite, and another seven from a home in Reno. They were all outfitted with all kinds of attachments. Picture the weapons you'd use in a Call of Duty game. Besides the weapons, they found power tools, a small sledgehammer, and glass cutters. They also discovered a snorkel and scuba mask, most likely a homemade gas mask, four laptops, and three cell 
cell phones were in his room. When they checked them out, they found searches for other targets. He'd been looking for, quote, summer concerts 2017, biggest open-air concert venues in USA, and how crowded does Santa Monica Beach get? They also found several hundred images of child pornography, according to the preliminary police report. What they did not find was a note. Well, that's not exactly true. The SWAT team did find a note near Stephen's shooting platform, but it wasn't the kind of note you're thinking of. It was handwritten numbers for wind trajectory and distance between his room and the festival. He knew exactly where to aim to hit his targets. Like I said, Stephen was always a numbers guy. Early theories assumed Stephen had an accomplice. Those of us on the ground figured there was more than one shooter. There were too many shots being fired for just one guy. According to the FBI, there's no evidence suggesting Stephen had any help. With some technical know-how, you can illegally modify a semi-auto rifle to fire like an automatic. That's what Stephen did using what's called bump stocks. In the early days, the terror organization ISIS claimed Stephen was working with them. This was proven false, and the FBI has found no links between ISIS and the Vegas shooting. Some conspiracy theorists would beg to differ. In their final report in 2018, the FBI could not determine a rock-solid motive. They answered the who, what, where, when, and how, but never the why. In 2023, the FBI released new files that offer a few more clues about Stephen's motives. A gambling buddy said Stephen was upset by how the casino was treating him and other high rollers. Stephen lived for the red carpet treatment, but he felt it was fading fast. There were no more free flights, cruises, or hotel rooms. Casinos began banning people who were winning too much. Stephen himself was booted from three casinos in Reno alone. He also seemed to be on a losing streak before the attack. According to the FBI, he was down about $1.5 But then again, with all his assets, it could be argued he had that to spare. He was also checking out other targets that had nothing to do with gambling. He even had a room booked in Chicago overlooking Lollapalooza in August 2017. There was a working theory that Stephen's mental health was going downhill. He began obsessing over his father's criminal history and wanted to follow in dad footsteps. His girlfriend said he was more distant in the months before he opened fire. In April 2023, a public records request uncovered letters written between Stephen and his buddy, an ex-convict by the name of Jim Nixon. The police had been sitting on these letters since November 2017 when they were found in one of Stephen's old buildings in Texas. Jim was worried about his friend. He wrote, I can get someone who can help you. Please don't go out shooting or hurting people who did nothing to you. Jim allegedly sent those letters between 2013 and June 2017. One mentioned that Stephen had been cooking up a plan for three years. This plan would allegedly manifest in Nevada, California, Illinois, Texas, New York, and other cities. In one of his final letters, Jim wrote, I believe you are lying to me and you are going to hurt someone or kill someone. You sounded like a real madman on the phone tonight. Jim never reported his concerns to the police because he didn't think Stephen would actually do something. I couldn't read his mind, he said. If Jim had said something, would it have mattered? Stephen was legally allowed to own as many guns as he wanted. At that point, his only interactions with police had been traffic stops. Sadly, we may never know why Stephen Paddock unloaded on 22,000 innocent people that day. Conspiracy theories have populated the internet, but they're more like bad wine. They have no legs and they don't age well. All we know is that in the end, 60 lives were lost and thousands more changed forever.
the only person who knows why put a bullet through his brain. Now, before I go, I'd like to bring it back to my personal story for just one more moment. This all happened back in 2017, but just about two months ago, we were all in Vegas again with the same band to do another outdoor show with another towering hotel in the vicinity, this time in front of the stage. After our show, as we were packing up, as in most cases, there was a small group of fans on the ground in front of the stage, hoping to score a souvenir like a guitar pick or a set list or a drumstick or something like that. But there was one woman standing there just holding a sign above her head that simply read, I survived Route 91. As I looked around the stage at our crew packing up, trying to find someone to identify with to say, hey, look, I realized that I was the only one on that stage that had been there that night. In the years that had passed, a lot of the folks that were there had gone on to other things and new people had come in. So I walked over to the edge of the stage, made eye contact with the woman with the sign, and I said, you know, I was there too. Then she lowered her sign down in front of her, smiled, and said something I will never forget. I am so happy that you're here. We're so happy that you could be here with us today. Thank you for stopping by. And until next time, please take care. And that's your recap. Thanks for hanging out with us today. If you like getting all the crime in half the time, go ahead and tap that subscribe button so you never miss a story. But don't go away. Catch up on more recaps right here, right now. Until next time, take care.